Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Therese Ann Fowler. My name is Stacy Hendren, and I'm manager of the Northtown Library in Blaine, part of Anoka County Library System. I'm thrilled to be hosting our featured guest and will be your moderator for tonight's event. So before I introduce Therese properly, allow me to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the St. Paul, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County Library is co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thank also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Therese Ann Fowler is a perennial favorite among historical fiction readers. For many, she may be best known for her 2013 chart topper, Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald. Z showcases the incredible life and historic times of Zelda, Zelda Sayer, the Southern Belle who married and inspired literary superstar F. Scott, Fitz, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Amazon Studios turned the book into a period drama, Z, The Beginning of Everything, starring Christina Ricci and co-produced by Fowler herself. Fowler's next novel, the New York Times and USA Today bestseller, A Well-Behaved Woman, profiles the iron-willed Elva Vanderbilt, matriarch of one of the Gilded Age's richest families. Vanderbilt gained a notoriety in her own right as an early and instrumental leader in the universal suffrage movement. Fowler's latest novel, A Good Neighborhood, turns the spotlight from historical, from historic luminaries to everyday Americans. Set in modern times in a tight-knit suburban community, A Good Neighborhood traverses the topics of love, race, and class, and asks whether families with diametrically opposed view worldviews can be authentically neighborly, that according to Kirkus Reviews. After a short presentation by our guest, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail. Dot com. So welcome, Therese. Hi there. I'm I so excited to speak with you tonight. I'm so excited to speak with you tonight. <laughs> Thank you to everyone uh, in the Club Book Network, all the folks that you mentioned in the beginning of your intro, and especially to you for, for facilitating our conversation tonight, and to everybody who is tuning in to listen to our conversation um, it's strange times that we're in. I think we've all kind of gotten used to the whole Zoom event thing, but I couldn't help thinking about how in ordinary times I would have been coming to Minnesota to get to do this event in front of, you know, everybody in real life. 
And it occurred to me that I have never done an event in Minnesota, which seems mind blowing, right? Especially given the, the Fitzgerald connection to St. Paul. And um, last year, when I would have been on book tour with A Good Neighborhood when it was first published in hardback, I had two events scheduled in the Twin Cities area, but those events, as with so many other uh, authors, um, just sort of fell into the black hole that became the, the COVID lockdown. So it's strange, but great <laughs> to, to be in Minnesota with you all tonight. Um, I thought that I would begin by talking about uh, what the book is about because I presume that not everyone who is joining us this evening has read the book or even maybe knows very much about it. So what A Good Neighborhood is, this is a contemporary novel that is about um, two neighboring families, one black and one white, who um, come to, to conflict over the, the damage that's done to this historic oak tree in the, the backyard of the, the black family's home. And the damage to the tree is caused by the construction of this um, very fancy sort of what we call like McMansion house by the white family. And then that conflict is further exacerbated when the teenagers from these two families fall in love with each other. Um, when I finished writing A Well-Behaved Woman, my expectation was absolutely that I would write another biographical-based historical novel. When authors come to be known for a particular kind of book, not only do publishers and readers expect, at least on some level, that author to repeat the thing that they've just done, but the author themselves usually want to stay on a track that has, has worked well for them. And so it was my expectation, as I'm, I'm sure it was my publisher's expectation, that I would write another of those kinds of books. And one of the reasons that I, that I didn't do that was in part because I didn't have a particular figure that I was really intrigued with to write about. And, and while there are many, many interesting and worthy subjects for fiction of this kind, a lot of them have already been written about because what happens when a genre becomes popular is more authors, you know, kind of gravitate to, to that genre. And so I didn't want to repeat anything anyone else had done. And I certainly didn't want to write about anything that didn't intrigue me deeply. And so I was casting about for ideas. And this was, let's see, the summer of 2018. And this was a time when I felt anyway, and I think a lot of people felt this, this way at the time, when what was happening around us in, in the United States was a kind of backsliding of the progressive um, accomplishments that had been occurring. Like since I was born in the late 1960s, things like environmental justice and equal rights and women's rights and um, racial justice, all the progress that seemed to have been made in the course of my lifetime seemed to now be de degrading. And there was this like barrage of information in the news about, about people who were being persecuted sort of openly by just like their neighbors for doing things that should not be considered unusual, let alone criminal. And I, when I say people, I mean people of color. And I was really distressed by that. But at the same time, um, the house that I lived in at the time had this, this enormous oak tree in the backyard. And that tree had been damaged by the construction of a house that was being built next door to ours. And so the confluence of these two kinds of distress were the, the seed, if you will, of the, of the novel that became A Good Neighborhood. And so instead of staying on the path that was the sure thing, I thought, you know, I just need to do something with all of this anxiety I have about these issues. And because I am a fiction writer, the thing that I, you know, figured to do would be to write about it um, 
and to write a novel about it. So that's how I got on that path. Um, it was a risk, I guess, but I also felt like I'd had enough success in what I'd been doing up to that point that a risk was not likely to kill my career. Okay, I hoped that it wouldn't. And um, I also felt like even if it, you know, I hope that it wouldn't derail anything, right? Because I worked a long time to get to that point. But even if it did, I just felt like I had to do something and that was a thing that I could do. And so um, I considered it um, a kind of act of alliance, I guess, with, with people of color. And I think more of us doing those kinds of things in whatever ways that we can, is at least one step forward to remedying, I hope, some of these problems. So I wrote this book and fortunately my publisher said, yeah, we would love to publish that book. Well, here it is. Let's see a good neighborhood. I'm just gonna read for everybody. Um, I think just the first chapter, which is pretty brief, but it will illustrate a lot of things about the conversation that we're going to have um, to follow this. So chapter one goes this way. An upscale new house in a simple old neighborhood. A girl on a chaise beside a swimming pool who wants to be left alone. We begin our story here in the minutes before the small event that will change everything. A Sunday afternoon in May when our neighborhood is still maintaining its tenuous peace a loose balance between old and new, us and them. Later this summer, when the funeral takes place, the media will speculate boldly about who's to blame. They'll challenge attendees to say on camera whose side they're on. For the record, we never wanted to take sides. Juniper Whitman, the poolside girl, was 17. A difficult age, no question, even if you have everything going for you which it seemed to us she did. It's trite to say appearances can be deceiving, so we won't say that. We'll say no one can be known by only what's visible. We'll say most of us hide what troubles and confuses us, displaying instead the facets we hope others will approve of, the parts we hope others will like. Juniper was hiding something, and she didn't know whether to be ashamed or angry or just exactly what. This new home's yard was much smaller than Juniper's old one, not even a third of an acre when before she'd had three. Where was she supposed to go when she needed to get away but wasn't allowed to leave? There was hardly any space here that was not taken up by the house and the pool, and what space there was had no cover. There was no privacy at all. At her previous address, Juniper had liked to sit among the tall longleaf pines at the back of the property, far enough from the house that she felt like she could breathe and think. She liked to be amid the biota, as the scientists call it. It made her feel better, always had. But the builder of this big gleaming white house had cleared the lot of the stately hardwoods that shaded the little house that had been here, the house that had been demolished without ceremony and removed like so much storm or earthquake debris. Except there had been no storm, no earthquake. There was just this desirable neighborhood in the middle of a desirable North Carolina city and buyers with ready money to spend. Just that, and now this great big house with its small but expensive naked yard and its pool and its chaise and its girl and her book. Juniper thought the rustling noises she heard in the yard behind hers, the yard that still contained a small forest of dogwood, hickory, pecan, chestnut, pine, and the tremendous oak that had been there for longer than anyone in the neighborhood had been alive, came from squirrels. She wasn't fond of squirrels. They were cute, sure, but you couldn't trust them not to run straight under the wheels of your car when they saw you coming. And they were forever getting into people's bird feeders and stealing all the seed. Juniper had a novel in her lap and steered her attention back to that. The story was good and she'd become skillful at escaping into stories. Hey, said a voice that was not a squirrel's. Juniper looked up, saw a teenage boy standing at the edge of the backyard with a rake in one hand, the other raised in greeting. He said, you must be our new neighbor. I'm about to clear out some leaves and saw you there. So, you know, 
I figured I'd say, hey. His appearance was a surprise in two ways. Juniper hadn't known anyone was nearby, so there was that. But even if she had suspected there was a person, a boy, a teen like herself, she would have expected him to look like her, that is, white. Everyone in her old neighborhood was white. Instead, he was black, she was pretty sure. Light-skinned, with corkscrew hair, the darkest possible shade of gold. Hey, she said. Yeah, we moved in yesterday, my little sister and my parents and me. You all from out of town? No, just farther out in this town. He smiled. Cool. Well, I didn't mean to bother you. Just, you know, welcome. No bother. Thanks. If this had been the extent of it, if they'd been able to greet each other and then leave it at that, well, everything would have been a lot simpler for everyone, to say the least. To say the least. So much simpler, but no book. Oh, yes. I'm a big fan of like reading first chapters and first pages and thinking about them. And I was grabbed immediately. It's like, wait, funeral? Who's going to have a funeral? Oh, yeah. and I just loved the introduction of the two characters. Thank so thank you. Thank you. No, I actually didn't know who was going to have the funeral when I started the book. Really? Isn't that, it seems crazy, right? Like you should know what the story is about, but there were different possibilities. And the story ultimately told me what the outcome had to be. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so the first question I want to ask, um, please tell me about your garden and the natural spaces that you are connected to. Well, my garden, so, such as it is at this point, um, because I, I moved since I lived in the house with the, the historic tree, is currently just um, garden beds outside here with the usual assortments of um, perennials and shrubs. But my connection to nature is a thing that goes sort of all the way back into my childhood. So I grew up in, um, in Western Illinois, the Quad Cities, which is probably something that most folks from the Twin Cities, well, may have heard of. Western Illinois, um, a little town called Milan, which is a bedroom community to Rock Island, which is part of the Quad Cities. And I was just outdoors always, right? Um, I lived in this little tiny house. There were um, five of us in this house with one, one bathroom, right? Little tiny starter house. And there was no space for anybody, right? So my life was, was really out of the house. And I um, was connected with nature, I think, just very early on for that reason. But I think you, if you if you have a connection, it stays with you. It's not just circumstantial. And in this case, it's something I've carried with me all along. So I, as a young adult, like, okay, here's an example of my sort of like environmental um, tendencies was uh, I had my, my first son, my oldest son in 1990, and I was so green that I was using cloth diapers with him when he was an infant and I look at it now and I just think oh my god why did I do that to myself <laughs> you know I was gonna save the planet I was kind of like uh you know Valerie who is the the uh, the mother of Xavier who we just saw in the in the introduction there um I was was so gung-ho about trying to keep everything as pure as as I could and I still feel best if I am out of the house, if I'm in nature. Oh my gosh, um, last, not last year, summer, which was 2020, but the summer before, I finally had the opportunity to go to the Swiss Alps. And my husband said that he's never seen me happier than I was when we were just out hiking in the mountains there. So it's, I don't know, it's just a thing with me. Oh, it's such a beautiful place too. Oh, have you been? I have. Oh, everyone go to Switzerland as soon as you get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. so great. Yeah, wonderful. So we talked about, you've read the first chapter and we talked a little bit about um, your environmental interests. In your acknowledgments, you share Zadie Smith's comment, an author can and should write whatever she wants to. She said, if you're going to have characters who aren't like you, just do your homework. 
So I was wondering if you could share us a little bit about that homework, that research about that you completed for a good neighborhood. And there's multiple issues and types of characters in this book. Right. So. Well, you know, the, the, the biggest issue, especially currently when we're in what I would call very sensitive times in terms of, of racial representations in the media, uh, I wanted to make sure that even though this novel is not only a novel about, about a Black family, that the, the representation of uh, Valerie and her mixed race son Xavier was as true and accurate as, as I will be able to make them. So my approach to that was not necessarily different than the approach that I would take in writing about any character who is not like me, but with the added awareness that I have never been and could never be a person of color and that it is absolutely a fact that people of color have a different experience of living than uh, white people do. So I made sure that I read both fiction and nonfiction uh, by black authors, that I read um, the accounts of what it is like for um, African-Americans or, or black people because not everyone, not every black person is African-American and I wanted to make sure I understood that, but personal accounts of what it is like to, to be a person of color in America now, um, interviews, documentaries, um, sociological information, basically any kind of material that I felt would help to ensure that I understood better um, what that experience was. And then I also, made sure that when I set out to tell this story, that I, I placed it in a world that, that I understood very well. And so essentially I put it in my own community. And then um, in addition to that, I made sure that I had sensitivity readers who are um, you know, black readers to tell me if I got it right. So that was all done pre-publication. Now, nobody ever gets it hundred percent right. Okay. I mean, even, even if I'm just like writing about another woman, that's a representation of someone who's not me and someone can come along later and say, Oh, but yeah, did you never thought of, you know, X? Well, it's true. Sometimes you don't think of X, but you, you do what Zadie Smith said, you do your homework and you get it as right as you can. And you accept that you can't please everybody. Um, but that the story that you have to tell is a worthy story and um, you just put it out there and then it becomes, you know, it becomes the fodder for critics and readers. And, um, you know, it, it is what it is at that point. But anyway, um, I appreciated that Zadie Smith addressed that issue because it is such a, it's such a fraught, area for folks these days. And, and there's a lot of debate in the literary world about who is entitled to tell what kind of story and under what circumstances and why. And, um, you know, I staked out my own position on that. I, I understand and appreciate if not everyone feels the way I do. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> well, I love the characters, you know, the depth of the characters, not just the, the, Af the, the black family, but the depth of Brad and Julia and their, you know, their different personalities. So, so thank you for that hard work. How was the research for this one and your writing process different than, or the same than from your previous more historical books? I, I think in a lot of ways, writing contemporary stories are, it's easier because you're not bound by an historical record. So when you write about real people and real history, you necessarily have to, or should, okay, in my opinion, you should follow what is established fact about those people. And, you know, take, for example, just Zelda Fitzgerald. We have a huge trove of information about the Fitzgeralds. They were terrific keepers of their own histories, in addition to everything that scholars have contributed to, to their histories since their deaths. And 
with all of that information, the challenge is like, how do you carve out um, uh, a narrative arc in a story like that? Because you're not writing biography, you're writing fiction. And that means you're, you're creating a story about these people's lives. And if, you know, imagine somebody trying to tell the story of your life. Like, where does it actually start? What's the most you know, interesting moment that sets off you know, that narrative arc? And then where does it end? And so you don't want to go birth to death in a, in a novel. That's, you know, nobody wants to read that. They can go to the biography for that. <laughs> um, so it's harder than it looks. And I was humbled by the experience of writing these novels about real people. So writing contemporary fiction is hard in its own way, but you get to make everything up and the characters, they still need to act like real people, but because you have an endpoint in mind and you have a kind of story in mind, you get to shape all of that. And so in that way, it's more creatively interesting, I think for a writer, it's less historically interesting for the writer, right? Because I love getting into the weeds with like, who did they know and what did they do and where did they go? But um, um, it was kind of refreshing to do a contemporary novel that I just made up completely out of my own head. Oh, wow. Thank you. We'll ask about a couple other questions about your writing in a bit. Um, I want to ask you your own question in the novel. What do you think makes a neighborhood good? What do I think makes me, I, I think having a lot of elbow room <laughs> from between my neighbors is what makes it good for me. Um, but, but more seriously, people being able to recognize their common humanity, I think is, is the thing that makes a neighborhood good if it can be good. And it doesn't matter, I think, what economic class we're talking about here, whether you're living cheek to jowl in some kind of high rise in Taiwan or whatever, um, or you're living in you know, a, a community like I am in now where everybody is really spread out from one another. It's the same thing. You're not all alike. You all have different experiences that you bring to, to your lives. And when then conflicts arise, instead of it being um, some kind of pitched battle between people to get their way, the idea that, that you can recognize that, that other people are human too and work toward resolution of problems, as banal as those problems sometimes are, uh, is what I think makes it feel good to live in any particular community. It's a good question though, and I don't think it's something that we consider very often when we decide where we're going to live. Often we just have to go to the place because we have a new job or you know, we want a certain school district for our kids or, or um, you know, our family is close by and we take the, the apartment or the house that is in our price range and, and is available at that time. And then we have to figure out, can we get along with everybody else around us? Um, I did an interview early on with a good neighborhood. I think it was pre-publication and somebody asked about this and I said, you know, it's, you know, the golden rule is the rule for living, um, being a good neighbor, having a good neighborhood. It's, it's just as simple as that, but it's also just as hard as that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so apparently we, we have, a, <laughs> we have a, a nice compliment from someone on Facebook. Teresa's so lovely and warm that I wish she was my neighbor. So oh, thank you. <laughs> and thinking of neighborhoods, one of our viewers is a native of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville. Fayetteville. Yeah. Thank you. Um, which they call a special place. How do you think this book would have shaped differently if Oak Knoll wasn't in the Carolinas? Yeah, this is a good question. You know, a lot of the focus of, of this neighborhood, Oak Knoll, in the book is specific to North Carolina, right? There's a lot of discussion about what grows there and um, what it's like to be in the South, especially for Valerie, who is Black, but she's from um, Michigan, and, you know, trying to integrate with the Southern culture. What I've heard from folks who've read the book since it was published um, in 2020 is that they are like in Texas, 
this kind of thing is going on. And in California, this kind of thing is going on. And in Connecticut, this kind of thing is going on. So when I wrote the book, I thought that it might be kind of particular to um, Central North Carolina, but it turns out it actually is pretty universal, um, sadly. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's, that's good in a way because it means that the, the story as specific as it is, has that universal message for, for people. And for me, that's very um, affirming because it is a kind of a message novel. And the, the wider that message goes, I think the, the, the better because we have big problems that we need to address. And those problems get solved from the individual level out. Good question, person from Fayetteville. Thank you. <laughs> um, that kind of reminds me of a, one of the questions. Your narr narrator says, here we have no choice but to be trite and say hindsight is twenty twenty, and what's done is done, and continue with our story because it is in the telling of a tragedy that we sow the seeds of hope, of prevention of future sorrows. So you talk about this being a message novel. What do you hope the reader will take away from the telling of this tragedy? Well, what tragedy does is it, it, it provokes a response in us, an emotional response, a really visceral response, if the story is good enough. And when we have an emotional response to a thing, we are moved to want to take action. And so that's what I hope the novel does. I would say, you know, authors are often discouraged from writing novels that are about serious subjects because often we are afraid that we're going to turn off some of our readers, we're going to lose readers because we're being um, what some people consider to be political. But I think when we write about things that are not actually about politics, but are actually about just being good humans, you know, that when an opportunity presents itself for that, um, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back when I say this. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it as kind of like civic duty, frankly. And if we are afraid of doing our civic duty, then nothing ever is accomplished. So whether that's through, you know, writing fiction as I do, or, you know, you, you run for your, you know, local, school board or you want to be on the city council or something, whatever that thing is, we, we should not be afraid to take a position and try to, to just make things better for folks. Um, and I think I just got away off track from what you asked me, but that, that's where it led me. That's okay. Yeah, you, you mentioned before, as a fiction writer, your way of doing action was to be a fiction writer. Right. So that's lovely. Thank you. And kind of building off that question, um, will you tell us a bit about your use of that kind of Greek chorus narrator and its influence on how the story was told? Right. So the choice to write this novel in this point of view, um, which is called the collective first person, was it wasn't like I sat down and said, you know, oh, I really have this ambition to find a new way to tell a story that I haven't done before. But I was thinking about I knew it was a tragedy. And I was thinking about how tragedy is told in stories historically. Oh, and I think we have time for me to, to do this. So I, I had this thing to illustrate how setting up a story from the Greek chorus um, works in establishing sort of what kind of story there is to come and how you want the, the readers to perceive that story. So just as an example of um, this is the, the, the prelude in Romeo and Juliet, which starts out like this. It's the, the sort of the chorus speaking to the audience. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, or civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life whose misadventured piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. So it's like it's set up, you know, right there in the, the very first words of the play that, you know, this tragic thing is about to occur 
And here's why. I mean, there's another stanza after that, but um, so bringing that Greek chorus voice to the story was, like I said, sort of calling back to, to the way tragedies are, are often told, but also because if you know anything about, about novels, you know that either they're usually first person, right, where the, the story is being told to you by one character or by a series of first person narrators who refer to themselves as I, or they're in the third person, right? So it's all about he, she, they. Um, this is a kind of a hybrid approach because what I wanted was something broader than just one person telling the story because it's bigger than that, but also not the distance that you get with the third person narration. I wanted a feeling of, of the reader being with the narrator and witnessing what occurs. And in that way, I think it brings the, the reader right in there with the narrators to, to observe and, and like I said, bear witness to what happened. Wow. I didn't know if it would work. Um, <laughs> it did. <laughs> There's a lot of reflective questions in that from that Greek chorus. So mm. I think it helped make the book more powerful. But that's my opinion. So thank you. I am all for Stacy's opinion here. <laughs> um, we do have a question from coming in from Facebook. Mm -hmm. They're asking which character surprised you the most when writing A Good Neighborhood? Oh, gosh. Which character surprised me the most? I think, I, I presume this is someone who read the novel. I'm gonna say Xavier surprised me the most um, because so much of the, the story revolves around the, the situation that happens to him. And I don't wanna you know, have spoilers for folks who haven't read the book, but I imagined him as a certain kind of character who would behave in a certain way, but then I learned that he was in fact a kind of character who would behave in a, in a different way, in a surprising to me way. Um, and I think that the power of the story grows from that. You know, I'm not one of those authors who ordinarily says, you know, my characters tell me the story. Like I don't hear them talking to me. They don't tell me what to write. Like I, that's, not, <laughs> that's not me, um, but, your subconscious is the thing that's that when, when some authors say they hear their characters speak to them, of course, it's just their imagination and their subconscious channeling those characters. And, and that's kind of what happened was Xavier created himself um, based on other things that I put in the story. And I was like, oh, well then it's gonna be this way. <laughs> it's really exciting for the author when that happens. Um, because you do better work than you think you're capable of doing when that occurs. Um, it's just really cool. Wow, such inspiration. I love yeah. it. Yeah, thank you. So I'd like to diverge from the book a little bit and ask you a couple questions. Um, as the librarian, I want to ask, how have libraries influenced you both as a writer and a reader? Oh my gosh. Well. As a reader, libraries were everything, everything for me when, when I was a kid. I grew up, like I said, in this little, little town in Western Illinois. My family lived in this little tiny house. We didn't have any money for anything, and books especially. I mean, I, I did occasionally get to buy a book through the Scholastic Book Fair, you know, <laughs> right? but I lived in my library. When I was really young, it was my school library because we didn't have a, a branch library in town. But when I got to be, um, I don't know, I was probably 12 years old, I started riding my bike to the public library that was closest to me. And I just like haunted the stacks. And I read any book that was on display there that was of interest to me. And it, it, I had a really rough adolescence for reasons that we don't have time to get into. But the libraries, it saved my life at that time. I absolutely credit libraries for keeping me out of jail, off of drugs, not pregnant, you know, not suicidal. Like all of that was because I could go to my li local library. So thank you 
Spacey and all library people for that. And it made me want to be a writer. It made me want to create the things that were so important to me um, so that they could, I hope, be important to someone else later on. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story. <laughs> so can you share something about your path to becoming a writer beyond the libraries that yeah. isn't in your blurb? Something about my past about becoming a, oh gosh, becoming well, a writer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was a late bloomer. That's not really in the bio, but my, my first novel was published in 2008 when I was 41 years old. And it was the first thing I'd ever had published, like ever. Um, well, wait, well, I'm not actually sure 100% because I wrote an essay in third grade that won a contest. And I think they might have run the essay in the, the local newspaper. But officially, my first novel was my first published anything. So that's not in, I think, any of the, the bio about me. The librarian in me wants to now research and find that newspaper and see. If that you exists. find it, please tell me. It would have been like uh, the Rock Island Argus, I think. Was the I should go looking for it, frankly. It was, it was like, what Memorial Day means to me. That was, that was the essay. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know what it meant to me. I don't remember anymore. That'll be the new the new essay for the the local paper. Yeah, I can write it for for um, the Raleigh paper, sure. <laughs> Are you working on anything at present? You would be willing to share your with your readers. I am. I am this close, like this close to having uh, a finished version. The book is done, but it's in re re the revision process. A new contemporary novel. Twenty twenty was so hard, right? It was so hard. And I wanted to write something that made me feel joyful while I was working on it. And that would make the reader feel joyful later. So um, the new book is called, It All Comes Down to This. It's a contemporary novel. It's a kind of a messy family's dramedy about um, three adult sisters in the wake of their mother's death and um, complications ensue. <laughs> Mm. So around this time next year I hope I'm knocking wood here that the book will be um, in libraries mm. and maybe we'll be able to bring you to Minnesota then please please <laughs> in real life so you did um, you were able to produce part of Z have there been any rumblings about adapting a good um, a good neighborhood for the screen there have there there are there are rumblings. They they will probably rumble, um, you know, like some thunderstorms as they approach, and then they just go away without producing anything. But um, <laughs> yes, there there is a really dynamic young actress who uh, I won't name because you know who knows if this will happen or not. Uh, who is very very interested in playing Juniper, and mm -hmm. she and um, her team are you know, trying to, but what happens is sometimes it comes, the, the interest will come from a studio directly as with uh, a well-behaved woman was like that. Sometimes the interest comes from an actor as with Z, that was Christina Ricci who got that ball rolling. Um, in this case, again, an act, an actress who is, is interested in putting together, but, but I don't know if it's ever going to come to pass. And I think we talked, um, you know, pre-meeting about like, who would I want to be in, in this story? I'm so like, not up on who the, the young actors are right now. <laughs> I don't know who I would want, like just somebody really great. Um, oh, wow. So with Z, what, will you tell us a little bit more about your, the role you played with the Amazon series on Zelda? Sure. So, and did you get to meet Christina Ricci? I did. I did. Okay. So here's a great story. I mean, before I met her in person, no, wait, no, I met her in person on the set during the production, but then when the, when the show was, was in the can, as they say, and ready to be released, there was a premiere in New York city in January of what was that 2016. And so was going to be coming to New York for the premiere and Christina and I were going to do an event together at the 92nd Street Y 
where it was just going to be Christina and me and um, a journalist doing an interview with us um, about the show. And I was here in Raleigh and I was like, oh my God, like, what do you wear for something like that? But I had a dress to wear to the premiere. So I thought I was like really ahead of the curve on that. But I didn't know what, what do you wear for like an interview in New York City yet? So I texted Christina, like, you know, I'm standing in, in this department store, you know, in the mall in Raleigh going like, what's the dress code? And like, I heard back from her within like, you know, three minutes. She's like, I don't know, cocktail? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so I go to New York and we are um, brought to the green room for the, the 92nd Street Y event. And I have to like say, Christina Ricci is an amazing human being because every every kind of press that she did for the tv series um, whether it was in tv or in print she credited the book and me which like you just don't see actors mm -hmm. doing this so she's a she's a mensch um, but we, anyway we get in the green room and the the audio technician comes in he's going to wire us with microphones and christina is wearing um a dress that goes from here all the way down to her feet and the guy, they're like How, you know what's the best way to get the microphone here you know and have it be hidden so she just like the dress comes off and she's in her underwear and they you know hooking her up with the microphone and i'm just like never in my wildest dreams about what the author life was going to be like was i in a green room with christina ricci disrobing in front of me you know for an event that we're about to do together it was surreal um oh, but it wow. was great fun and i i really appreciated everyone who worked on that project it was a terrific experience and i think they did a great job with the show oh wow so i am sure that you know that Scott fitzgerald grew up in saint paul and no, had lots of <laughs> lots of family and friends in minnesota what did Zelda think of her of his family? And do we know if she hasn't had any opinions about Minnesota? We don't know absolutely what she thought about his family. I, you know, his relationship with his family was fraught by that time. And I imagine that that affected her feelings about it. But they did come to live in, in St. Paul for a brief time early in their marriage. So there, there is no correspondence really that that I am aware of now, and it's been a number of years since I had my head in all of that, but I'm pretty sure that there isn't anything absolutely saying, you know, like Zelda writing to her mother about this or whatever, but she was kind of this, this hothouse flower, you know, coming from the deep South with her Southern accent. And um, so what I have in, in Z was, you know, Zelda thinking about how people, Minnesota people perceive her. And she uses the, the expression, I swear, but in, in her Southern accent, it comes out, I swear. And people are asking her, what, what exactly does I swear mean? You know, <laughs> they've never heard before. So, you know, I'm trying to represent how much of a fish out of water she was, and not just you know, culturally, but the climate too. Um, she was from Montgomery, Alabama. It was cold that winter in St. Paul. She actually got pregnant that winter though too. So, you know, draw what conclusions you will from her time there. How did you first become enamored with the stories of Zelda Sayer and Elva Vanderbilt? With Zelda, it just like, this never happens to me, but this is how this happened to me. I was considering various ideas that I would have for what would be my fourth novel when like just out of nowhere, like this idea just fell into my head. It was like, what about Zelda Fitzgerald? And I didn't know anything about Zelda. So I was just like, well, that's weird. What about Zelda? And I went to Wikipedia and I read all the misinformation on Wikipedia about Zelda. Um, but there was enough there that that got me, you know, intrigued between what I thought I knew about her and what 
was probably true and not true. But there was other, this other thing was a, this really weird coincidence was that, that the date of Zelda's death um, was the same date as my mother's death, right? Not the same year, obviously, but I was just like, there's something very strange about this. And, and because of this coincidence and because I'm always a champion for the underdog, I mm -hmm. just kept digging. And everything I learned about Zelda made me angrier um, to think that that if I had these these wrong ideas about her, so did so many other people. And so the process with Alva Vanderbilt was similar, although she's not nearly as well known as Zelda, and there's almost nothing really authoritative about her biographically. It was really hard to get to the the bottom of who she was, but it turns out that she too was badly misrepresented. And so I thought, this is fascinating to me. The whole Vanderbilt family from Alva all the way through to Anderson Cooper um, are really intriguing. And so I had to start somewhere. And Alva was this great champion of, of women's rights and suffrage late in her later years. But I started out with how did she become the woman who became the, the champion of suffrage. And so that's where a well-behaved woman came from. The Gilded Age is fascinating. I mean, we're kind of in another Gilded Age now, frankly, and the, the overreach of, of the super wealthy in influencing government policy is very similar to what was going on in the Gilded Age. So. You know, some someday somebody is going to write about. I don't know who the the modern day um, figures might be, you know, the people who are sort of, you know, pushing against the the, the wealthy patriarchy now, are going to be our heroes. You know, in a hundred years, I hope. Mm, I'm trying to think about who I want you to write. In. <laughs> I'm thinking about who I want you to write about now. So there you go. Mm. Um. So what are you reading now? What am I reading? Yes. Mm. <laughs> Actually, like the, not this minute, but this day, reading um, a biography of a, the woman who became Fyodor Dostoevsky's wife, which is like in a very, like I'm learning all about Russian history and um, this woman who, like, she's sort of like the woman behind the man kind of thing. So mm -hmm. that's fascinating. Um, I did just read, well, this is not a book that's out yet, so people can't even look for it in the library. I'll, I'll hold off on those recommendations. <laughs> Are there any um, works of historical fiction or that you would recommend to someone who's read and enjoyed your books? Yeah, let's see. Um, I, well, Historical based on, not necessarily on real people, but on a real time in history um, is, uh, shoot, I'm gonna forget the, the title of it. Kathy Marie Buchanan's new novel. Oh golly, Kathy's gonna be so angry when I can't remember the title and I don't have it in front of me. And it's over there on my bookshelf and I can't see it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, also, um, uh, Mitchell James Kaplan has a new novel out called Rhapsody which is this lovely story about George Gershwin. Um, actually, I mean, it's not really about George, it's about his, his songwriting partner, Kay, I'm blanking on this. Stacy's going, Therese, you should have written this down because you knew I was gonna ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, oh, and of course, most people probably have read Paul McLean's books about Ernest Hemingway and Ernest Hemingway's um, two wives that she has written about, but I would absolutely recommend basically anything Paula McLean writes, you should read if you haven't already. And she has a new book coming out uh, called When the Stars Go Dark, which is a departure from her historical novels. But if you like the way she tells a story, please look for that book, which is coming out like next week. Oh, mm -hmm. so we all have a few more on our TBR list now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So let me think. We did have another question wondering if you and John Bader read, edit, or otherwise assist each other in your writing. 
Okay, so John happens to be my husband, John Kessel. And John Kessel is a renowned author in his own right and was a, a creative writing professor for, I don't know, 30 plus years. And um, when you have me back, I'll tell you the story of how John and I got together because it's a really great story. And, um, but yes, we, we do read each other's work in draft. Um, my practice is usually to not talk very much about what I'm writing while I'm in the writing process. I'm not the person who, if you sit next to me at dinner, I'm like, oh, I'm writing this new novel and it's all about this and here's the characters and you're gonna be so fascinated. No, I'm more like, you know, you'll say, so what do you do? And I'll be like, I'm a writer, you know? Well, tell me what you write. Oh, no, you don't want to know what, what I write. That's me, okay. <laughs> so I will give John um, the drafts of my work basically at the same time that I send them to my agent and my editor. Okay. And um, he will do the same for me. But we will have many dinner conversations between the two of us about what John is working on, which I am always fascinated in and much more um, inclined to speak about, <laughs> whether it's just to him or to anybody. And then, you know, he's a, he's a great beta reader in part because, I mean, he's not necessarily my target audience, but he is such a qualified reader, you know, having, uh, is, is a writer himself, as I said, and then as a professor of creative writing for so long that I get a very important take from him. And then I get, you know, different feedback from my agent and then of course from my editor. And then between all of those inputs, it helps me to shape the story for somebody like Stacey. I love to be the reader. <laughs> so thank you. you. My new book, Stacey, you'll be prepared. <laughs> I'm excited. So any words of wisdom for an aspiring writer who might also be a late bloomer? Oh gosh. The, the single most important factor that separates the successful writer from the unsuccessful writer and I want you to use whatever version of success is correct for you, is persistence. And especially now, because right now the, the publishing world is kind of contracted tremendously, as is true for many businesses in you know, this sort of COVID mess. Um, so it's, it's just that much more challenging to break through the noise, but there is always, going to be room for another good book as always going to be true and if it's your aspiration to to have a published novel then you just have to persist and you don't have to be the best writer you have to be the good enough writer so you know work towards good enough first and just keep at it oh wow Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you this evening. Oh, so glad that we could fun. have you virtually. It's already um, over. <laughs> well, what's wonderful is it's recorded. So our readers, our watchers can come back and back again. And, you know, we have another conversation that, that needs to happen again in Minnesota mm -hmm. once we can all come back together. Well, thank you. So thank you so much for this evening. Thank you all for joining us. I appreciate it so much. That wraps up our Anoka County Library event with Therese Ann Fowler. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Abby Jimenez. Food Network favorite Abby Jimenez is owner of the world famous Nadia Cakes Bakery chain. And she's a USA Today best-selling romance novelist. Her newest, Life's Too Short, follows a globe-trotting social media starlet whose carefree lifestyle is suddenly upended. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you 
to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.